Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, today we have got an action-packed program for you. Uh, Politics with your Wheaties. Uh, You might have noticed that uh, if you're a... um, a sustaining a listener of 3CR, that 3CR is in the middle of uh, a subscriber drive and uh, it runs till the 16th. And uh, today I have to lend my support to asking you to uh, put a few dollars into our coffers to ensure that we continue. That's 35 unwaged, 70 waged, I think, and 135 solidarity. And uh, it's every dollar counts in this uh, abysmal period of political history. Uh, we bring you lots and lots of information about what's going on around the around you. Uh, in fact, this uh, past few days, I've been down at uh, the town hall because there's a climate summit on. It's a, a new sort of uh, approach that the sustainability uh, festival people are taking. They're, instead of doing a... Um, Festival, they've decided that they're going to do a summit because uh, it's all about a climate emergency now. Uh, it's not about just uh, twiddling your thumbs and hoping for the best. Uh, and uh, there was, there's about 2,000 people down there and it runs for another day. Uh, it's a, a group of um, people who have been fighting for quite a considerable time for people to take climate action. And it's a mix of uh, activists as well as uh, people from local government, uh, also from uh, uh, high flyers. They've got a whole range of different people who are speaking uh, about things like uh, the politics of it, the uh, legal ramifications, uh, a whole range of other things. And it's in tandem with uh, the Melbourne City Council. So it's quite an interesting development, really. But uh, we'll uh, start off with some important messages about subscription first. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. 
Gecko is an independent, grassroots environment organisation based in East Gippsland that has campaigned to protect the remaining forests of the region since 1993. Goongra Survives is a film fundraiser, with all funds raised going to Gecko to survey fire-affected areas for ongoing forest conservation. Goongra Survives, Café Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury, Sunday the 16th of February from 6pm. $10 unwaged, $15 waged and $20 solidarity. For more information, head to goongrasurvives.net, a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and on the line we've got Hannah. Hannah is from... Uh, global Unity Movement. G'day, Hannah, how are you? <laughs> Good morning, how are you? Yeah, I thought it was a very nice uh, uh, acronym, GUM. <laughs> we chew the gum, it comes in different colours and flavours, and uh, yeah, there's no end to its symbolic diversity and plurality, and we just thought hopefully we'll stick one day as a concept. <laughs> and uh, you're trying to develop uh, people uh, a concept that uh, of gathering people together to t- create tangible ways to uh, to be more responsible and contribute to the uh, range of issues that uh, people are beginning to really feel that uh, they need to be grappling with, but are feeling a bit disempowered. Can you talk to us about why you want to bring this group together? Well, I guess, look, uh, I mean, it's no, um, I guess, mystery that most of society is not only disengaged and people are finding that there are very few spaces and platforms which engage a sense of hope, which engage a sense of vision and which are unifying. We're living in a world that is so polarised and so divisive, um, most uh, people and communities are feeling disengaged and unsettled. And I guess in my experience, having run hospitality platforms where people congregate, often the conversation seems to be that uh, people are hungry, uh, pardon the pun, for uh, and have a massive appetite not only for a better world, but for ways that we ourselves can stop uh, trying to change the hearts and minds of politicians, but rather begin to, in a practical way, do one thing each day that's going to make tomorrow better. Um, so we came up with this idea where, um, and I think also putting together not only a vision which is unifying, which is speaking to all the issues that are making society unsettled, but also importantly, um, from our perspective, I think there are very few um, places and spaces which bring causes together. And often our protest and discontent is cause-specific. So we've got a lot of work happening on the environment and the climate. We've got a lot of work happening on women's issues and the Me Too movement. There's a lot of conversation on First Nations um, There's a lot of conversations happening and groups protesting around asylum seekers. But very few uh, come together and unify across those causes, which I believe 
are um, an expression of the same system of inequality. So if a system is producing uh, these inequalities and manifesting in such awful hostility, then it is about resonating with a bigger vision and seeing ourselves across causes as allies in all these causes. So the global unity movement is about unifying people on, and it's built on a foundation of four pillars, which are those issues that I mentioned, that we um, become allies and advocates of all these causes all the time so that our perspective is one of human rights social justice, and the preservation of the values of the society that we hold dear, which are being eroded and undermined by governments and media all over the place at the moment. It's interesting because the uh, real strength for humans is our capacity for culture. And what you're really talking about is... uh, uh, shining a light on that or uh, creating a uh, fire stick that will actually help that burn? Look, ab- absolutely. And I think, I mean, we start from the premise where, um, and certainly in my experience, this has been reinforced every day. Most people are decent, no matter their points of view, no matter how you may or may not disagree. Um and the more, I guess, diversity in our point of view on life and, and solutions, the better, the more it enriches the conversation. The problem is we are living during times where um, sound bites, fake news, falsehoods, and uh, unsettling people has a lot of currency, making people hate on one another, making people afraid of one another. We've turned our curiosity about difference into fear. We um, have turned nonsense into a legitimate point of view and expression. Governments are playing politics together with media, and commercial media especially, with issues that are not about politics. Namely, and we start from the premise, coming back to what it is that we can do in a tangible way. These aren't just talk fests. These are conversations where communities from the ground up can begin to strengthen across causes and begin to put pressure on and demand from governments uh, that they govern according to our values. No longer uh, is it acceptable, I guess, to do nothing or to wait for government to change. This is our way of saying, look, governments can do what they want, Um, And we're not going to waste our time and energy, although a lot of people are kind of doing that work with governments and advocacy. But what we're doing on the ground is trying to say, okay, and I'll give you some tangible examples. If we're talking about First Nations, um, supporting First Nations people and being allies in that conversation, we invite, no matter what our causes are, and we all have many, whether we're asylum seekers or Muslims tussling with Islamophobia or women with violence against women, um, that we all, whilst being on the margins of society, we're still benefactors of being on lands that have never been ceded. How do we become allies? with First Nations people. And we have partnered up with um, and reached out to the local community with Lydia Thorpe and in a tangible way changed our support to pay the rent campaign. 
and we invite our entire community to get on board those campaigns. Now, that doesn't take one iota away from our commitment and advocacy to other causes like Islam and speaking out against Islamophobia or violence against women or asylum seekers, but rather it actually enriches them because we begin to advocate a perspective that is about human rights and social justice, not cause-specific. Now, you're inviting people to a conversation today, aren't you? Yes. So it's more than a conversation. It's hopefully... Um, It's this afternoon at 2.30. It's a community gathering across those four areas primarily. And again, not exclusively, but it is to begin to reactivate our citizenship where we feel we're not just, um, I guess, sitting back so apathetic and disengaged and disempowered, but rather we can feel like we can do tangible things to contribute to change. And it is at that local community level where we get on board the Pay the Rent campaign, where when it comes to asylum seekers, I think governments at the moment are so inhumane that we are trying to put together what we call a community bank, for example, like a skills bank set where... Okay, if they're not allowed employment, they're not allowed education, they're not... I mean, we're trying to suffocate asylum seekers out. We're trying to say, how do we envelop as a community asylum seekers through donating skills and support? So if you're a hairdresser, for example, you can donate your haircutting skills and we'll put you in touch with somebody who needs a haircut. If you're an educator, we'll put you in touch with somebody who need some English lessons. If you're simply somebody there who can have a conversation and be a buddy and give somebody an orientation into an area. Now, these, um, I guess, uh, acts go a long way in showing our humanity, but also not waiting for government legitimacy. Um, So there's some of the things we we do and equally around... um, um, not only First Nations and pay the rent campaigns, even on the climate stuff, like government continues in the face of devastation to pretend that we're doing the right thing. We're trying to say simple things like 90% of plastic, 90% only has a 10-minute shelf life. That is extraordinary. Most people don't even know this. So we're saying let us, just in our local community, not use water bottles plastic water bottles. These are small, practical, tangible acts where community begins to feel revitalised. So, yes, it's a talk fest, and yes, it's a coming together, but it's, it's essentially planting the seeds of hope and, and the seeds of um, re-engaging our humanity and our connectedness with the values that are important and giving those legitimacy. So it's at 2.30pm, it's at 316 St George's Road, North Fitzroy, and yep. it's... Uh, you're, you're, come along. Come along. Come along, have a yarn, chew the gum, and, uh, and get on board what will be an inevitable, I think. It will tip across because ultimately we are wired for good and what makes us feel better will have much more currency. We just need those platforms to express it. And as a business of hospitality, as somebody who is responsible for community, this is our community expression. And the more we offer these platforms up, the more people 
absolutely have a hunger for them. So, yes, come along to Moroccan Superbars 316 this afternoon, even though hopefully the weather will hold up. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, yeah, we get some rain today, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, which is pretty unusual. It's blisteringly hot yesterday, which should tell people yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the yeah. Moroccan uh, Soup Bar, 316 St. George's Road, North Fitzroy at 2.30pm for the Global Unity Movement uh, chat. It's gum. Uh, you don't have to bring some gum, but uh, you no, can... But- Come and chew it anyway, and uh, there'll be some light refreshment conversation and some very interesting people. I think Lydia's going to say a few words. Um, somebody will be speaking on asylum seekers, somebody will be speaking on violence against women, and somebody will be speaking on the environment. And all those, uh, so that we can begin not to see these uh, causes of human rights as competing with one another, but rather as unifying them. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for calling. When you think of community, 
uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Could you begin by introducing yourself and the organisation and the work you do? Yes, so my name is Leanne Ho. I'm the Executive Officer of the National Social Security Rights Network. We're the peak organisation for community legal centres around the country who provide free legal assistance to people having issues with Centrelink. You've been doing some work in regards to Centrelink issues and the recent fires. What are some of the examples of people's experiences that you're hearing in the regions impacted by fire? Well, I think we've all heard that the fires have been affecting whole communities and whole regions. But our experience in particular is with the people who are most vulnerable. And they're the ones who are hit hardest by the fires because they don't necessarily have the resources to escape or to find alternative accommodation. They might be sick or disabled and not well enough to get away. And the people who are most reliant on evacuation centres might be elderly, residents of retirement homes. They don't have family nearby and they're evacuated by the police or single parents who don't have strong family networks and have all of their children that they need to look after. So it's really the most vulnerable in the community who are hardest hit when a disaster like this happens. I wonder what happens to people without savings reserves and assets when they're required to evacuate. Well, in the immediate term, there are charities and state governments are providing immediate emergency support, like providing vouchers for petrol or direct cash payments for groceries and canned food and even temporary accommodation. But I wanted to stress that that is short-term support with the aim of trying to direct people to family and friends for longer-term support, and it doesn't extend any further than that. And what are the difficulties in planning responses between the local, state and federal agencies? And I particularly ask this question as Centrelink is a a federal responsibility. Yeah, there are emergency response plans that provide mechanisms for local, state and federal cooperation in this kind of emergency situation. And normally they work quite well, but the scale of the response that's been required because of the unprecedented nature of this fire disaster, has made it much more difficult. Decisions have needed to be made really quickly in response to a constantly changing situation. So our experience with the government departments we have contact with is that they're trying really hard, they're best, doing their best to be responsive, but it's very difficult given the scale of the disaster. Could you describe some of the difficulties that people have experienced in in claiming disaster recovery payments? Yeah, so the first thing is that it can be confusing to know what payments are available. There's this disaster recovery payment that many people will have heard about um, for people who've been significantly affected by the fires, and that's $1,000 per adult and $800 per child. 
And that's available to people who are currently on a Centrelink payment, but also those who aren't on a Centrelink payment. But then there are other payments that you can only get if you're not on a Centrelink payment. For example, disaster recovery allowance to people who've lost income as a result of the bushfires. And then there are payments you can only get if you are currently on a Centrelink payment. For example, crisis payment or urgent payment. So that can be quite confusing. And secondly, we've been hearing from people that they turn up to Centrelink once um, they've been able to get away from the immediate disaster um, and try to claim a payment. But it's hard for them to gather the evidence they need. Um, for example, one family turned up after the house had burnt down and were told that they needed to provide photos of the destroyed property, which they couldn't access because all the roads to their property were closed. And that's obviously extremely distressing to people at a time that they're going through this significant trauma. So um, it's really important to know that help is available and our members are community legal centres. They don't charge anything for their legal advice and people who are having problems accessing disaster recovery payments can call one of our centres for help. In Victoria, there's Social Security Rights Victoria and also the Barwon Community Legal Service. And you've mentioned that people are obtaining payments in a different number of means and some of the people are currently on Centrelink and other people obtaining payments who aren't receiving any current payments from Centrelink. But all payments are being processed through Centrelink, is that correct? That's correct, yes. There are payments that are kind of administratively owned by different government departments, but Centrelink is um, the one-stop shop for actually making those payments. So adjustments are being made all the time. For example, the uh, disaster recovery payment for children was actually increased from the original amount of $400 per child to $800 per child. And the government also massively relaxed the income test for people accessing the disaster recovery allowance. Um, so that um, that change was actually made retrospectively to July 2019. Um, there was also a change um, to what needed to be destroyed or severely damaged to get the disaster recovery payments before the whole house had to be destroyed or severely damaged, but that's been adjusted um, since mid-January to include major assets worth at least $20,000. So, for example, a destroyed shed or a destroyed stock fence or water pump could enable people to access that payment. Again, given how confusing all of these payments are, we really encourage people to call our member centres if they have any difficulties with working out what they might be entitled to and also because the situation is so fluid and it's hard to keep up to date they can call and find out what the situation is now. It must have been developed very rapidly and it seems the difficulty in this situation when we've got a disaster and, and then to develop something of great complexity as a model for people to try and understand. Yeah and I think making those decisions so quickly means that you're bolting on different types of payments or changes 
rather than being able to design a coherent system. Are the disaster recovery payments adequate for many people? There are definitely calls for more to be done to help everyone affected by the fires. But as I mentioned earlier, it's really important to remember that the impact of the disaster is greatest on those who are most vulnerable. And they're the people who really need the most help. So disaster recovery allowance is paid at the rate of Newstart allowance or use allowance, depending on the recipient's age. This is really highlighting the fact that the rate of these payments is simply too low to live on because it's people who don't currently receive a Centrelink payment who are now suddenly reliant on this disaster recovery allowance and finding that it's just too low. And also it's quite expensive for getting accommodation and food and other means when you're not in your usual routine, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So to establish a new safe space to live in actually ends up costing more than maintaining an ongoing living arrangement. To give one specific example, what has the impact of the bushfires been on single mothers, for example, who are on Centrelink payments? Yeah, so single mothers and their children um, are very vulnerable in this situation. As I mentioned earlier, they may not have the family or support network to find alternative accommodation to get back on their feet. Also, many of them are required to participate in Parents Next. That's Mm. the program which requires them to undertake activities in order to receive their income support payments, which they rely on to look after their children. There's actually a temporary freeze on all mutual obligations for participants in Parents Next, Job Active, Disability Employment Services and the Community Development Program. But that was only in place until the 19th of January. For fire-affected areas, that's actually been exempted till the 6th of March. But we're still hearing widespread reports of just confusion about who is exempted and who isn't, um, and not knowing whether people would still need to complete their job searches for the month, um, whether or not they're in a fire-affected area. So it really highlights that the system needs to have procedures in place for times of a disaster. Flexibility. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, flexibility and taking into account what people's situation is and how appropriate it is to ask them to fulfil obligations during these times of disaster. Yes, because as many people would be aware, one of the very difficult obligations with Parents Next is people also need to be in a certain location at a certain time and if they're evacuating, then obviously they can't be there. Mm, that's right. Um, how, how have people on the cashless debit card, have you heard um, in those regions where the in-due cashless debit card's already been rolled out, been affected by the bushfires because I imagine having a a lack of um, access sometimes to cash in a crisis would be difficult. Yeah, so a good example of the limitations of the cashless debit card was seen in Seduna, which is one of the cashless debit card trial sites. And there was a power outage on New Year's Eve which left 25,000 people without power, so they weren't able to use any cards. There's actually a hotline that people on the cashless debit card can call. It's actually the same Department of Social Services 
phone number that people on the cashless debit card normally call. Um, so what the department has told us is that they're deciding on a case-by-case basis whether they're going to grant access to cash funds and how much, depending on what evidence people provide of how they've been affected by the fires. So it's definitely worth people in a situation who need access to their cash to contact the department and explain what their situation is and provide any evidence they can of why they need access to their money. Again, with any of these issues that we've discussed today, we encourage people to call one of our member centres in their local area to get help with how to tackle these issues. For anyone listening, nssrn.org.au backslash services, which will give you a list of the contact details for all of our members around the country. nssrn.org.au well, thank you very much, Leanne, for speaking on 3CR Community Radio and Over the Wall today, and we hope to speak to you again in the future. Thanks for having me, Peter.
Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't still. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And yes, as Kim Salmon says, you can subscribe to this wonderful radio station that brings you news and views. And uh, the phone number, it's best to do it during uh, uh, usual office hours, which is uh, nine to five, because there's nobody here but me, me and you. We're here at this moment on this rainy day in Melbourne, wherever you're listening, that's what it's like here. Uh, It's nice actually getting the rain. It's lovely to have rain. It's hard to remember what it's like sometimes. Uh, But I always carry my umbrella. (laughs) You never know when it might happen, the great opportunity. Uh, There's been lots of things happening around in uh, the... uh, national scene and one of them in particular of course has been uh, the coronavirus and how that is affecting or rather the way the national government is actually dealing with this particular health scare has uh, had uh, perhaps unforeseen but uh, maybe foreseen effects on uh, uh, temporary workers and migrant workers and so I had a chat with Matt Kunkel from the uh, Migrant Workers Centre down at uh, Victoria Trades Hall about uh, how it is actually affecting them. So thanks very much for talking to me, Matt. Uh, You're the director of the Migrant Workers Centre at uh, Victoria Trades Hall and uh, you've been uh, really concerned about the way the federal government has been handling the coronavirus, especially in relation to migrant workers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we've seen the Scott Morrison government do here is just completely xenophobic. This discriminatory travel ban targets only temporary migrant workers. Uh, And we know that the virus doesn't discriminate against people on the basis of their visa. Um, But this is just another example of how the government is using people's visa status to divide us instead of... um, And it's just, I guess, moreover, it's it's just symptomatic of this government, really, where they are so eager to be seen to be doing something um, instead of actually doing something that will actually help stop the spread of this virus. Um, and they've punched all the way down to the bottom, and, and what they see is the people that they can push around the most are temporary migrant workers. So what did they actually do? What did they decide to do to uh, show that they were action figures? Well, yeah, I mean, two weeks ago, uh, the government announced a travel ban for people coming out of China, uh, foreign nationals coming out of China, but it didn't extend to people who were permanent residents or were partners of people um, with with residency or citizens. So um, those people were... um, taken out of the country and and many of them were put into um, Australia's island prison on Christmas Island. Um, 
but those that weren't, those that didn't have those types of visa classes, so people like international students or working holiday people um, who have gone home for Lunar New Year to see their family uh, are stuck. Um, and what we've seen, um, what we've seen in the, the two weeks since we've been talking to people stuck in China is that these aren't people that have only been here a short amount of time necessarily. There are people that have been here for four years, eight years on skilled visas um, who, like one that we, we spoke to today, is talking about how he's going to pay his home loan in Australia. So these are people that are in our community, have built a connection to Australia, um, but are being left behind by this government. Oh, that's fascinating. I have heard that uh, people who work here and are citizens who come from a family are in China and have gone back to for the Lunar New Year have uh, experienced uh, price gouging as well for uh, fares. So, you know, $2,000 for a ticket that originally was <laughs> much less. Oh, I can't. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but that wouldn't surprise me in the very least. I mean, that's the way that capital works, isn't it? I mean, um, take as much as you can from, from whoever you can. So it doesn't surprise me that that would happen. Now, what you're saying is that it's obviously not about actually stopping the spread of the uh, virus because other people are allowed to come back. That's right. So this is what we've been calling on. We've been calling on for an approach that's based in, like, health science, uh, not a knee-jerk reaction from the government um, looking to be seen to be doing something. So uh, the World Health Organization issued advice that travel bans were not what was required at this point. Um, and this is not even a travel ban. It's a partial travel ban. It's a discriminatory travel ban that targets just temporary migrant workers. Um, it's, it's not going to stop the spread of the virus. I mean, um, if people are sick, um, it doesn't. It's not like the virus, you know, has a look at people's visas before it infects someone. Um, it affects you, me, anyone, just the same as it would a temporary migrant worker or a foreign national. So, this discrimination based on visa status is purely a concoction of the of the pollies in Canberra. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, uh, health science. Uh, many people have got have had this virus and have survived. The mortality rate is, I know this is a fairly unpleasant thing to say, is actually quite low. Not much fun for the people who've died or their families. No, of course. I mean, and look, it's very sad for those families that have lost loved ones to the virus. Um, And there are, you know, the World Health Organization, again, is concerned about the virus. But there's a proper way of going around, uh, there's a proper way of dealing with these types of epidemics. And discriminating against people on the basis of their visas is not part of that part of that plan in any shape or form. This is purely a political move by this government to try and whip up fear amongst people and to deflect against their own inaction. What this government should have done and what this government could do to keep Australians safe and to keep people, the, the travelling public safe, is to have not spent the last decade cutting funding to customs and to the, our scientists that work at our universities and at the CSIRO. Those are the types of people that we need at this moment right now. We don't need some half-cocked travel ban. Um, it's not going to be the difference. We need more people on the ground doing the research and, and, and trying to, to control this, the, the spread of the virus. We don't need more people blocking others from travelling around the world and meeting up 
reuniting with their families and going to work as normal. That's the other thing about this, Annie, is that a lot of the people that we've been speaking to are like, well, what am I going to do? I'm in insecure work. I'm, I'm worried about my shifts. My shifts are already being given to other people. I, how do I pay my rent? You know, I only came back to sit and visit my family for two weeks, but now I've been stuck here for more than four weeks. Uh, but no, I'm not stuck here, but I'm back in China for four weeks and my rent's due in two weeks' time and I've got no extra money, I've got no job, uh, and I've got no prospects to go back to. I mean, these are all the, the unseen consequences of the government's travel ban. It's just, it's very wrong. And we're saying to the government that if you don't lift this ban, then you need to have something in place for these people that are affected by it. And the government, if it's not going to lift the ban or if the, if the ban's not lifted um, soon, the government's going to need to start compensating people who are caught up in it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because a lot of people will go, oh, I don't care about politics and they don't understand that policy actually does affect real people on the ground. Well, and that's right, Annie. I mean, people think, oh, there's a travel ban, that's great. But what's happened is, and we've seen that the travel ban and, and all the kind of um, messaging from the, the government has created this anti-Chinese sentiment in the community. So, you know, Chinese businesses are talking about people not coming. We hear, we hear mm. stories about um, Chinese people of Chinese descent or even people that, you know, are mistaken for coming from, um, from China or other parts of East Asia are being abused in the street. And just yesterday what we saw was a Malaysian woman in Perth locked out of her house because her landlord thought that she would have the coronavirus and she's not even been to China. I mean, this is the kind of thing that this type of half-cocked policy on the run really, really makes. They've dealt with this disease outbreak exactly the same way that they've dealt with refugees, which I think is no accident that the government is treating this, it treats refugees in the same way they do as some kind of pestilent plague from overseas. Um, it just demonstrates the the racism of our current refugee um, policy of locking people up in island prisons out of sight and out of mind. Um, and I think that one of the things, hopefully, that will come, come back to roost for them is that the government, by sending... Australian citizens and permanent residents just to see how bad things are on Christmas Island, um, you know, maybe people will start to have a little bit more solidarity and, and support for, for refugees and their, their plight. Particularly that, that, that family from, um, the Tamil family from Biloela, um, who have been there for months and months now within a seemingly intractable um, dispute um, or case, um, imagine how it would feel for them um, to be alone for such a long time and then the next group of people that come in um, are people that are supposedly, you know, possibly harbouring this, this <laughs> yeah, no. disease. It's, it's shocking. It's, it's, it's barbaric and this government needs to be held to account for it. Now, uh, we're talking on a day that uh, they're actually going to perhaps reassess this situation so hopefully we get a, a better result. Uh, is this because uh, of pressure on the government? I'd like to think so. And, you know, the, um, at the Migrant Workers Centre, we've been, like, 
communicating with the with affected people and, and trying to put pressure on the government about this. Um, but the plan is and always was to revisit the travel ban after two weeks. Um, so today, the day that we're talking, Annie, is the, is the, the day before two weeks comes up uh, and we expect that by the end of the day we'll find out whether or not the government's going to extend the ban or not. And what we're hoping... Um, what we're hoping people do, and, and if any of your listeners know people that are personally affected by, by this travel ban, we're hoping that they'd get in touch with us um, because we're looking to, once the travel ban is lifted, and it will be lifted, to get all the people together that are affected by it um, to start addressing their, you know, their visa and their employment issues when they, and their housing issues when they get back to the country. So people can um, get in contact with us on Facebook or just look up Migrant Worker Centre. Um, we'd love to hear from anyone who's been directly directly affected by this and they can join the, the scores of other people who have already told their stories about um, what, it, what it's meant to them and the problems that this travel ban is causing them. Now let's go to another issue that also affects your members and that is the demise of uh, George Columbaris's, uh, uh present business framework. Mm-hmm. Oh, where do you start? Um, I mean this is just the chickens coming home to roost isn't it? So George Columbaris did the wrong thing um, and, you know, there's been a lot of publicity and we don't need to sort of go through all of that again, but his business has suffered because people quite rightly have had enough of, you know, the, the wage theft epidemic in um, in hospitality. So, you know, business has gone down the gurgler, but just as it always is under our current system, uh, it's the workers that face the, the deepest problems. And particularly amongst those that group of workers, it's the temporary migrant workers that are, um, again, even more affected than than others. What we've got, what we're facing at the moment, Annie, is um, a situation where the company may not have enough assets to cover all of their liabilities and all their entitlements to the workers. And surprise, we know surprise. Many... Yeah, I know, right? Tell like, surprise. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, George, you know, and poor George has got to sell his Turak mansion, but I mean, he won't be putting that money back into the business to, to make sure the workers are paid. He'll probably just have to get a smaller mansion somewhere a little bit further out from Turak or, or maybe a penthouse apartment in, in, in St Kilda. But what, what the temporary migrant workers are facing is, is a real, I mean, a triple whammy in some ways. They don't have a job, but not having a job and ha- not having an income means in some cases they don't have a sponsor anymore. So the clock has started for those temporary migrant workers and they now have 60 days to either find a new sponsor or apply for a different type of visa so they can keep their residency. And then the third punch in the guts really is the fact that when all this is said and done and the banks and the creditors and the like everyone comes together and carves up this this pie when they you know eat the eat eat the the, the this this group and if there's not enough money to cover all the workers' wages, for anyone who's a permanent resident or a citizen of Australia, the taxpayers of Australia are going to pick up the bill um, through a program called the Fair Entitlements Guarantee, which is an excellent program that ensures workers don't lose out when their boss goes under. The problem with this, though, for temporary migrant workers is that they're not covered by this Fair Entitlements Guarantee. So if you think about what that means is that if... I was washing dishes at, the, at one of George's restaurants and next to me was a, someone on a temporary, temporary visa, like an international student or a working holiday maker. The government would pay my entitlements and my unpaid wages, but they wouldn't pay that person that was doing exactly the same job next to me. Um, and it's just not fair. Um, 
and it's something that often gets overlooked in these really big liquidation cases is that um, there's just no protection there whatsoever for temporary migrants, um, which considering temporary migrants make up a bit over 10% of our total workforce is a, is a real scandal. Yeah, it's it's uh, exploitation on steroids, basically, and it also brings yeah. it also brings into uh, focus the Heston Blumenthal debacle down at Crown. Uh, same thing, exactly the same thing, Annie. I mean, we we see this unfortunately all the time, and there's one thing the government could do to fix this, and that's to extend the fair entitlements guarantee to all workers, regardless of what visa they're on. And we think that that's only fair. Um, you know, if you want to look at it through a Liberal Party lens even, these temporary migrant workers are paying tax, just like everybody else, <laughs> just like you and me, but they don't get the protection that other taxpayers get. And that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is because it's the fair and the right thing to do. Um, but it's just it's just a shocking example, again, of how temporary migrant workers are excluded and um, and, and othered and made to be less than everybody else in this country. Yes, well, the United Workers Union called for Crown to take up the sponsorship of those uh, temporary workers. So that was an interesting uh, issue that came out of the uh, Blumenthal carry-on. Yeah, and, and Crown should not only take up sponsorship of those workers, but they should pay their wages. I mean, if they're, they're thick as these. Blumenthal and the and Crown Casino had a very, very close arrangement. I mean, the workers that worked at Blumenthal's restaurant ate with all of the other staff at the casino. So they would go to the staff canteen and eat their meals next to um, people that, you know, were, were dealing poker or serving drinks or counting chips or, you know, table games and things like that. These, it's, it's again, another example of, you know, clever corporate structuring to avoid responsibility to workers and to avoid bosses wearing any of the damage when these things go belly up. It's just, Crown should absolutely do the right thing. They've got enough money. That's a, like, it's a money factory for them and it would cost them nothing to make sure those workers are looked after um, in, the, in the grand scheme of things and they really owe it to those workers to, to pay up. Thanks for talking to us, Matt. No worries, Annie. Anytime. Yo, peace. This is Rod Stars. What up? This is G1. This is DJ Illinois. And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 8.55 AM, 3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio. Let's go. 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when, well, several weeks, which I'm sure has been a great relief for you, listener, but bad news, we are back. Several weeks that were, when big supremo scuttled in more lash sun performed so brilliantly that Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo Anthony, all being oozy, became more popular than scuttled them without doing anything, which, which is his policy, showing his policy is working a treat, although in these polls it's more a question of who's the least unpopular, which this week happens to be Anthony, and in the unpopularity stakes, what's it say for Barnacle, as he waded from a swamp somewhere and couldn't even beat the hayseed and cheap shit supremo Michael McComick in a battle of the minds over climate change, and given they all know there's no such thing as climate change, the battle must be to determine who is the biggest denier, as they said their constituencies don't care about climate change, don't give a stuff an issue only for inner urban greenies 
as pejorative a term as you can level. Constituencies don't care about climate change while those constituencies were engulfed in infernos which had absolutely nothing to do with that of which there is no such thing and about which they don't give us stuff. So all those people interviewed in those constituencies suggesting now just might be the time to talk about climate change must have been tourists, holiday makers just passing through, inner urban greenies talking nonsense. And as the infernos raged across the environment, the one shining light, so to speak, was no one had the slightest idea where Scuttledem was. He'd just disappeared miraculously. He wasn't. But then after a few days he was again and assured us he understood why people wouldn't shake his hand and seemed a bit upset with him because they were going through stress and despair and it had nothing to do with him. And all those people who hated him didn't really hate him, they just thought they did because they were going through stress and despair which had nothing to do with him. How could it? I, I was in Hawaii when all this started. It wasn't personal, showing he must have made good use of his time sunning it up on an Hawaiian, Hawaiian beach, studying the US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trample the Paws book of logic. The buck doesn't stop here. Perfection can never be wrong, ever, ever. And scuttled him, yelled, Hallelujah, and bless the inferno, because this is the Armageddon his religion knows, precedes the end of the world as we know it, the righteous living eternally with the dear baby Jesus, showing his policies are working, and scuttled him, warned us all to repent or spend an eternity in the fires of hell, which a large part of the population was already experiencing, while those glaring differences in the hayseed and sheepshit party over climate change were exposed when Fossils Forever Minister Matt Canavan of Coal resigned to support Barnacle showing what a whiz he is with numbers. And then an ideological rival, the appropriately named Keith Pitpony, took over the Fossils Forever portfolio, yelling, Fossils Forever! But like Matt, he also supported non-polluting uranium as a source of power to counter the climate change he knows doesn't exist. Well, non-polluting if we discount a couple of hundred thousand years of waste pollution, radioactivity, but, but as Keith pondered Philip philosophically, with our other policies, that won't matter. And if Pit Pony is an appropriate name, the most inappropriate is the new hayseed and sheepshit deputy supremo, a bloke called Little Proud, because he had so much to be proud about. After all, before the failed barnacle resurrection, he was minister for natural disasters. And what a success story. There were natural disasters just everywhere. Although nature needed a lot of help from the species which considers itself top of the pile to achieve Little Proud's proud achievements of natural, unnatural disasters. But then, if he didn't give them a little push on the way, he wouldn't be doing his job. And as the natural, unnatural disasters raged across the country, our minister for making the filthy rich, filthy richer, Matthias Rotten Tudor, turned up at the filthy rich annual talk fest at Davos to tell the world true blue Aussie was being unfairly attacked for being a shackle on international attempts to address that which the government knows doesn't exist.
We would exceed our Paris and Kyoto agreements, and don't forget the onerous target we set ourselves at Kyoto was to increase our pollution, which we've proudly achieved. Sometimes we just have to puff our, puff our chests out as true blue Aussies and bathe in jingoistic glory, and, and this impertinent Scandinavian teenager made these ageist comments when we all know her place is in the classroom, knowing she can safely leave the guardianship of the planet in the hands of responsible adults like Matthias and Donald, who attacked the prophets of doom, forecasting an apocalypse, a burst of wisdom set against the background of down under in flames. And any remote suggestion there may have been a relationship between anthropological greed and the infernos was scotched when Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head returned from a well-earned holiday with the headline, Warming is Good for Us conceding a surreptitious admission, incidentally. So let's get out there and make a decent job of warming the joint. The usual suspect columnist's thoughtful contribution, making it hard to believe that in the middle of all this, one of Lord Rupert's scions dared criticise the family international propaganda brainwashing machine over its climate change denial, its imbalance on the issue. His accusation, his allegation, because we would never believe such calumny. Leading Lord Rupert's whopping sin editor here to declare, speaking for all fair-minded people, I shudder at the extent of misinformation if News Corp journalists weren't presenting their wide variety of coverage and analysis. Uh, a wide variety? The full spectrum from total scepticism to outright denial. We also saw a few resignations for the usual reason. The Green Supremo, the Tasmanian Supremo, among others, all declaring they wanted to spend more time with the family. They all say that, except... Then we had a couple of Her Most Gracious Majesty's extended inbred family hangers-on, declaring they wanted to retire from royal duties, whatever they are or that is, so they could spend less time with the family. The male virgin, whose job was Prince, said he would attempt to become self-sufficient financially and not bludge on those who pay tax, not live in public housing palaces. And given his last official Prince job was the onerous task of conducting the draw for some football tournament, he's spending his mornings poring over the employment ads looking for a permanent job conducting football draws. He's the one who loves to wear a swastika. Interesting. Given the last resignation from that lot was his great-uncle or great-great-uncle or whatever, Edward, who also loved the swastika. Definitely not the retiring type. Even in his megalomaniac triumphalism or trumphalism, Donald couldn't help but display his idiocy, declaring he never thought he'd love a word so much. Greatest word ever, ever. A word he now loved. Total acquittal. Which, Donald, just happens to be two words. But then, if he'd said two words, he would have been telling the truth, and that's most likely anathema. I reckon if all those mostly low-income souls lined up at magistrates and other courts around the country every morning awaiting the full force of capitalist justice could unilaterally declare the prosecution cannot present its case, has no right to present any evidence against them, then there'd be a lot more total acquittals here as well. 
in the it's better to better to give than to receive department, Donald also offered the landless Palestinian non-people an offer they couldn't refuse, but did. The greatest peace offer ever, ever. So great and even-handed a plan that even the Zion big supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, said it was a great offer, thwarted by the selfish land-grabbing non-people who said they wanted a bit of land for themselves. When Donald and Benjamin said, by refusing to hand over to Zion the pockets of land they, that weren't theirs anyway, they didn't appreciate the great pleasure of giving rather than receiving. Forcing us to take, they bemoaned. Greatest take ever, ever. And as the government has come under a bit of criticism over its environmental non-policies, I'm stunned it has also been criticised over its anti-waste policy, which has been a huge success. Yet we've seen the anti-waste ex-minister, poor Bridget, hopping around with a board in her foot. But goodness me, if you've got all this money to spray around the country, you have an obligation to spend it in the most responsible way. Don't waste a cent of it. And that's all poor Bridget did didn't waste a cent and it worked they won the unwinnable showing those complaining are just bad sports and if people want to live in non-marginal seats well that's their choice move if you want to avoid waste finally the principled position award of the week to rex pat prick of the nick xenophony lot over this smash the evil unions and evil union bosses bill he won't vote for it good on him if the government diverts some of the trillion-dollar train-killer submarine contract to western Trublawazi. But if all the money goes to south Trublawazi, his home base, then he will vote for it. Uh, but, but what about the principal, Rex? Principal, capital, money, finance, call it what you like. Perhaps the submarine contract is the criminal behaviour that should be smashed. No, no, the future of workers is a trading pawn. That's real principle, Rex. Good morning. Yes, that's it. Real principle. You're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, on the line, we've got Scott Jordan. He's from uh, the Bob Brown Foundation and he's the lead campaigner for the Defend the Tarkine. G'day, Scott. How are you? Morning. Yeah, um, I shock you into um, uh, a, a ravey, in, but you are you are the lead campaigner for the uh, defending the Tarkine, and at the moment the Tarkine is being nibbled away at by uh, loggers. That's what's going on at the moment, isn't it? That, look, that's exactly what's happening, and that's it's been happening for a number of years, unfortunately. Um, we're seeing a state government here backed by a federal government who are just hell-bent on um, turning the Tarkine's beautiful rainforest into wood chip and, and plywood. Now, I've just recently come back from the Tarkine, and I'll have to say I've done a, a, a fair amount of walking around there, and it is just the most splendiferous place, and it seems quite bizarre to me. Uh, one, uh, I realise that in Tasmania, most of the people there appear to have been turning their face towards tourism, which requires this beauteous natural world that still remains there to to remain there why why do you think that the government in Tasmania thinks that it there is any legs for wood chipping such beautiful forests well I, I guess the first thing you've got to get your head around with with the logging debate in Tasmania is there is no logic in, in it um, this is an industry that's destroying the, the natural places that our, our tourism economy relies on and, and less than 
1% of the workforce is employed in native forest logging compared to 20% of the workforce being in tourism and hospitality. And so it really is a case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. But also, this is an industry that the government loses huge amounts of money on. Um, we're, we're talking up to $75 million a year in, in direct and indirect subsidies, but also in losses made by the state's logging corporation. Um, so that a handful of, of um, you know, small um, millers and, and a large Malaysian plywood company uh, in Taran um, can make a profit, and the huge profits that are being made by wood chippers are effectively getting uh, logs from these beautiful rainforests delivered to their door at less than the cost of cutting them down. It's it's obscene what's happening here, and there's no logic in it whatsoever. But but you've got an old guard government who's stuck in 1950s thinking, who's subservient to the wood chippers and and these these recalcitrant millers, um, who who want to see this this fast continue. The majority of logging in Tasmania is actually done in our plantations and it's an operation that runs on a proper business model and generates uh, revenues for those that are planting the trees. Um, we're not seeing the same in our native forest sector and it's long past overdue for, the, for this to end. I uh, heard from somebody when I was down there that uh, uh, that the government actually has been uh, asked about uh, logging in the Tarkine and they were saying that, oh, it's not really happening. And it wasn't until someone blew the whistle on them that, uh, oh, yes, that, uh, well, yeah, 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 it is happening. So they're actually not uh, uh, being open and transparent to the population of Tasmania. Oh, look, this is correct. I mean, they, they spend an inordinate amount of their time and money on trying to spin this argument. Um, we've had forest camps out there physically on the front line locking the logging for the last four seasons. And we're, um, you know, we started those in, in September of 2018. And so we've, we've been out there... Sorry, 2017. Um, we've been out there for, for a number of years... Um, holding them off. And so by our presence, we've actually prevented some of those areas of logging. Um, their response has been to, uh, when we turn up, they deny any any intention of having log, have logged it, um, despite the fact that we've only turned up because it's on their, on their plan and they've started preparation works for it to go ahead. And so there's, there's an element of they know what they're doing is shameful. And as soon as there's a bit of um, sunlight on it, they withdraw. And we've seen that this week. Uh, over the last two weeks, really, where they've moved into a, a forest in the Kew River and, and, and tried to play an argument that, yeah, it was only a small bit of logging when we knew it was a 54-hectare um, scheduled coop. Um, and they've they've ended up retreating with only 40 logs. Um, we saw them then move into an area off the Pyman River where a uh, similar situation. They've logged five hectares of the 28 and once there was a bit of sunlight on, on what was happening there and media attention to it, they've withdrawn very quickly. And so it does show that they, they are well aware that what they're doing is, is reprehensible and indefensible. <laughs> and and so they're playing this grab-and-run sort of game. Yeah, yeah, and you've had a, a camp there with a, a steady amount of 20 people, but more people are turning up, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, we've been running... Uh, our, our, I guess our main base camp in the Sumac area where we've for the last two years prevented them from putting roading in that would allow for logging of, of the beautiful rainforest in the Sumac area. 
um, in the Tarkine. But we, we've also had um, camps over the last few weeks responding to that logging in the in the Kew River and the Pyman River area. And because of the presence of those people and the and the, uh, those people that have been willing to put themselves on the line and be arrested for these forests. We've, we've seen the government um, withdraw the loggers from both of those areas, and we, you know, we're incredibly grateful to those, you know, brave, you know, defenders who have turned up to to put themselves on the line to to see an end to this. Are you calling for more people to come and support? Look, absolutely. I mean, these are areas that have both um, national heritage and world heritage values. They've been verified. They're areas that, that everyone around Australia should be standing up around. Um, these are your forests. Um, these are forests that, that, that globally we, we should be defending and we should be proud of. And, um, and we need people on the ground. Um, you know, we, we always need people to, to hold that frontline defence. But as well as that, we need people who are getting on the phone and ringing their local member wherever you are and saying... We want this to stop. This is reprehensible. This should not be happening in, in 21st century Australia. Is there any contact details for people who are interested in coming? Yes, look, they can, they can contact um, us around um, coming to the camp at, at um, the Bob Brown Foundation. And so um, scott at bobbrown.org.au will, will get you in contact with me and we'll, we'll find a way to get you onto the front line. Um, but as well as that... Um, the general contacts through the Bob Brown Foundation website can um, you can sign up there. You can go on the our mailing list and get up to date information on the campaigns we're running and and the needs we have at any given time. Thanks for talking and to me. And of course you can oh, donate. Oh yeah, and of course you can donate. And thank you very much for talking to me this morning. No worries. Thank you. I uh, got a new song. It's a uh, it's a lament in the form of a lullaby. I don't want to sing the song alone, and, and I had the idea to launch it with a choir. And what what better choir to launch it with than pub choir? Just love the boiling frog 
Lapsed. We want you back. Spend more than the evening with us. Reunite with us. Subscribe to 3CR and get excited. Call 9419 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. And let's get back together. It'll feel so good. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and I'll have to say that there were two people who came in earlier this week and subscribed and they were saying nice things about me. And apparently uh, the uh, every program is supposed to be drumming up at least four subscribers and I count those two as mine. <laughs> if they're going to come in and say nice things about me, I think I deserve it. <laughs> so as I said, uh, $35 for unwaged, 70 for waged and 135 solidarity and you will be helping to uh, keep this station on air and you'll be a member. You'll be able to uh, come to... Uh, and have your say at the uh, annual uh, meetings or anyway you can come in and have your say anyway because uh, we like to hear from our listeners just like you like to hear from us. Uh, you'll know that uh, uh, over the last weeks uh, the uh, Indonesian Prime Minister was in town, Yudiano was in town and of course the uh, uh, one of the pieces of news that came out of that was that the new uh 
leader of the Greens, uh, Adam Bant, uh, showed his support for West Papua by wearing a uh, free West Papua T-shirt in the Parliament during that uh, visit when he was there, which is a good thing. Uh, And also outside there were uh, demonstrators uh, for West Papua and uh, we've got a little bit of uh, information about that, but a bit of music first. President Yoko Widodo was being fated in Canberra yesterday. A number of demonstrators were outside the Hyatt Hotel to voice their concerns. We're here outside the Hyatt Hotel and the President of Indonesia, Yoko, is inside and I'm here with three men from West Papua. Hi, my name is Ronnie Kareni and I've got other two brothers here. Hello, my name is Adrianus Biri. Myself is a a plate so flussy. And we are here today. Basically, we know that Indonesia and Australia will sign the trade agreement, economic trade deal. 
that they have been assigning. And our message is that no trade deal without human rights protection and no trade deal with genocide in West Papua. And that is our key message here. And we are here to demonstrate and show him symbolically the message that is on this banner, Free West Papua, Rip of Lombok Treaty. And we've already got Indonesians, guests who are coming in here to meet with the president and are expressing their concerns that, oh, this, why are you guys staging this protest? And I told him that the situation in West Papua is deteriorating every year, every day. And in terms of human rights situations, the military operation, and especially we see last year in August alone, peaceful demonstra- demonstrators or peaceful protesters are faced with prison charges now. We have 57 political prisoners right across West Papua and Indonesia charged for treason, just simply protesting or organizing peaceful protests. And just like us here today, Mm -hmm. we gathered here in front. For West Papuans, they don't have that liberty or that freedom to freely express or assemble together. The Lombok Treaty, as Brother Adrianus here, can speak of his experience as as one of the 43 West Papuan refugees that came in early 2006. Their arrival sparks diplomatic tension between Canberra and Jakarta and the outcome of that is the Lombok Treaty by which it's a defense and security agreement by the two governments but it also within that they embed in clause 2.3 says that Australia should not abate or allow separatist movement happening in Australia but it is very open-ended agreement by which Australia was that serious, we would have been already arrested now, you know, if that treaty. And so for us, Indonesia is using every means to silence the voice of any governments in the world. And through that treaty, we are calling for Australia and Indonesia to to rip that treaty and to also consider human rights in that treaty. And this is why with this economic deal, we are calling for that as well. And what's your name and what's your experience? Uh, my name is uh, Plato Aflasi. Yeah, my experience uh, as uh, an activist when I was in Central Java of Indonesia in the 90s, I had a struggle with my friends and it was pretty hard, but uh, I do believe that uh, someday I have to go overseas to learn English to increase what happened back home in West Papua, that everybody knows that uh, human killings and then now uh, Jokowi is coming. And I found the news about uh, developing economic business and na-na-na-na, but uh, what I see, uh, nothing developing in West Papua. It's all just like under debt, debt of blood. The result is people get torture, get chasing everywhere. And then regarding to a Lombok Treaty, the autonomy program, what I saw as a student in Central Java at that time, that the Lombok Treaty tends to an autonomy program, but uh, I didn't see any West Papua indigenous in the, in, the, in the meeting in Lombok. Nothing. And how we agree with that ag- result? We never have any West Papua sitting in any international agreement which is uh, using West Papua natural resources to develop an economic international business. And people are uh, victims of this situation. Yeah. That's what I see for last 20 years as a student until claim a shalom sika in Australia and end up in Townsville. So what do you have to say to the President of Indonesia, Yoko? I just want him, when 
He leave West Papua country. Leave us alone. Just I, I want to see. It's not only him, them, one is smart to build up the economic blah, blah, but West Papua have a, what you call a good standard too, to develop their own country. That's what I, I do believe that. To me, it reminds me of when colonists came for the first couple of hundred years in Australia, just massacring people and showing no respect, taking over a country against people's will. That's pretty similar. Uh, Only the situation of us in West Papua was the Dutch built the parliament, involved all indigenous, and we we wearing jackets like uh, white people in Europe in 1950s, 60s. And why we become animal now? That's... Animal, I mean, Indonesia pulling our necks like a cow. That's what I just don't understand. We were developed by Europe, and then these guys coming and put us down. That's what I can't accept it until today. And why do you think that West Papuan cause doesn't get much really, really big power international support? I mean, there's a lot of international support, yeah. but it's all from the margins. It's not the mainstream. Why? Yeah. Why is the cause being left to? This appalling state it's in now. The matter is, uh, yeah, example with this agreement today, the Jokowi is here. This, so that Australia starting like began to uh, a deaf man, you know, doesn't want to listen. And after Jokowi leave, Australia starting to listen again. That's, I, I, I just got upset every time. These guys are playing West Papua or not? I'm, I don't really believe. But uh, I do believe so, also. In next future, things will change it. It's every politician is not do same thing. But someday we had a powerful people standing for West Papua. I do believe that someday. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.